We are in a series on the everlasting gospel, and the message today is entitled, Christ Our Righteousness, taken from our scripture reading there. I want to revisit a little bit about what we talked about last week. Last week's message was uh, a little more theological. We talked about imputed and imparted righteousness. We talked about justification and sanctification and these kinds of things. And one of the things we talked about was an interesting and important piece of history for us as Seventh-day Adventists. And I mentioned that uh, of the middle of last century, about 1950 or so, in Adventist history, we had an experience where we had some Seventh-day Adventist leaders who met with some evangelical leaders. And the long and short of the, the meeting was that they attempted to explain Adventism within the context or in the, the fa- uh, framework of evangelical Christianity. And the challenge with that is that it can't be done. And the reason it can't be done, I gave a few reasons last week. First of all, the leaders that our leaders met with believed in, they were Calvinists, so they believed in predestination. Seventh-day Adventists don't believe in predestination. Predestination says that God has already determined who's going to be saved and lost, and wherever you end up, you end up. You have no choice in the matter. We don't believe that. You know why? Because it's not biblical. Amen? And I make no apologies in saying that. And so to try to fit in a, 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 a view of the gospel in a context that doesn't give free choice isn't possible. They also believe in one saved, always saved, which is... Which is goes along, not everybody who believes in predestination does, or in those terms, but it's kind of hard not to at any rate. But one of the most obvious things that's different is Seventh-day Adventists believe that when Jesus died on the cross, rather than dying on the cross to do away with the law, he died on the cross to magnify the law. So Seventh-day Adventists believe that the law is still part of a Christian, of Christian living, where the evangelical leaders did not. And I mentioned this last week. We're told in inspiration that the commandments of God, the law of God, or rather, let me back up. We're told that the gospel is the divine remedy for sin. Well, sin is transgression of the law. If you take the law out of the picture, the gospel becomes a remedy or a cure for a disease that doesn't exist. You follow that? If the gospel is to save us from sin, but there's no law, the Bible says very clearly in Romans 4.15, Where there is no law, there is no transgression. And so what it does is you take the law out of the picture and it confuses the matter. Rather than the gospel being, as we looked at last week, the power of God unto salvation from sin. That will transform the life. Because there's no sin, the gospel becomes about forgiveness and forgiveness becomes about appeasement rather than a gift from God for transformation. And then Jesus becomes the Savior from the penalty of sin, but he's not the Savior from the power of sin. And this has very much influenced even our church today. And one of the probably the most obvious areas is a downplaying of the part of righteousness that's called sanctification. Now, you don't have to get lost on all these terms but we'll get into it a little bit further here. Now, I did share these last week, and I want to revisit a couple statements I shared with you last week. Christ Subject Lessons, page 128, says this. No man can rightly present the law of God without the gospel, or the gospel without what? The law. The law is the gospel embodied, and the gospel is the law unfolded. The law is the root. The gospel is the fragrant blossom and fruit which it bears. Again, just saying, the law points out our need for the gospel. The law shows us our sin, which is why we need to go to Christ. The next statement here from Evangelism 231 says, Both the law and the gospel are blended. In no discourse are they to be divorced. In no discourse are they to be divorced. Now, it's interesting. It talked about the law and the gospel, and the uh, uh, the gospel was the law embodied. But the clearest embodiment of the law we have is in Christ, isn't it? And the thing about this is the law, when you come, now you can read through, we can take the Ten Commandments out, and I want to get us past that. When we talk about the law, we're not talking about a checklist. We go through and say, okay, got that, got that, no, I don't do that, don't do that. The law is a spiritual law, and you see the fullness of it in the person of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, when you come face to face with the law, really come face to face with the law, and the Spirit of God brings that 
sense upon your heart and your mind what it's about, it brings conviction of sin. It exposes sin. It exposes sin where you didn't think there was sin. What's interesting is you go to the New Testament and you see the Pharisees, and the people thought the Pharisees were the most righteous people on the planet until Jesus showed up. The Pharisees also thought they were the most righteous people on the planet, by the way, until Jesus showed up. But when the embodiment of the law showed up, it exposed them for what they were. In contrast with him, it was very clear that they were anything but righteous. You follow what I'm saying? And that is what drew out that hatred against Christ. I was reading the introduction. If you've never read the introduction to Martin Luther's uh, book on Romans, The Reformer, I found this statement. I thought it was powerful. He said, the more the law demands what men cannot do, the more they hate the law. The more the law demands what men cannot do, the more they hate the law. Because we like to do it ourselves. We like to be self-sufficient. And the law exposes that. And Jesus was the embodiment of that. And so in no course, discourse are they to be separated. They work together. They blend. The law exposes the sin, which leads us to Christ for the power over sin. Now, Ellen White made this famous statement that fits in this context. She says, as a people, and I want you to notice the date. We're going to go to here in a little bit, in 1888 uh, uh, era. She says, as a people, we have preached the law until we are as dry as the hills of Gilboa that had neither dew nor rain. We much must preach what? Christ in the law. Now, it's funny. Sometimes I've had people say, hey, we preach the law so much, we need to preach Christ. Well, we do. But we need to preach Christ in the law. You can't divorce them, right? In no discourse are they to be separated. Because if you preach the gospel without the law, you're preaching a remedy for a disease that doesn't exist. Right? Hey, I've got some medication here. No thanks, I'm not sick. Right? Isn't that what Jesus said? It's those who are sick who need a physician, not those who are well. He wasn't saying his listeners weren't sick. He was saying, you don't see your need. We must preach Christ in the law, and there will be sap and nourishment in the preaching that will be as food to the famishing flock of God. It helps us to sense our need. And we were in Sabbath school this morning. We looked at Christ's Object, object Lessons 152, which tells us the sense of need. The recognition of our poverty and sin is the very first condition of acceptance with God. We have to see our need of him. That's why Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He's talking about soul poverty there. Now, something interesting happened, and I highlighted the date here. There's something interesting that happened in our history as Seventh-day Adventists in 1888, and Ellen White puts it in these words, and I'm going to share it with you. In fact, I'm going to tell you this whole section, I'm just giving a paragraph, but this whole section of testimonies to ministers is, if I could require it as a reading, I would. It's powerful, and it's, it's, it's important as an understatement. This... this uh, uh, is highlighting a piece of our history. Now, I, I hear Seventh-day Adventists, and you can probably finish this quote. We have nothing to fear for the future, except as we shall what? Forget the way the Lord has led us and his teaching in our past history. You know what we do? We go back to, to Joseph Bates, and we go back to Hiram Edson, and I'm not opposed to that, but you know what a lot of people miss out on? This huge piece of history. Notice what it says. The Lord, in his great mercy, sent a most precious message to his people through elders Wagner and Jones. This message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It presented justification through faith in the surety, you see the capital S, calling Jesus the surety. In other words, he's the guarantee that we can have eternity. We look to him. It invited the people to receive the what? The righteousness of Christ which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. It is what? This is the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of his spirit in a large measure. We refer to that as the outpouring of the latter rain. Does, is that something that we as Seventh-day feel is an important thing? If you have not studied this, the latter rain, and I don't have time, this isn't a sermon on the latter rain, but the latter rain is what is going to fit God's people to get through that final crisis. Without it, nobody's going through the final crisis. And so here God sent a, a message to his people 
to bring more prominently Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ ascended, and the righteousness of Christ, which is given so freely to his people. Now, I have to bring in something here that we often miss today. In fact, some of you, this is going to be news to you. I've had people try to convince me today that our church is in the same condition it was in 1888 today. Now, there may be some similarities, but there's a very glaring difference in our church today and our church in 1888. Now, I believe this message. Look, if this is the message that's going to come and prepare the way and, 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 and prompt the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this is, if this is the third angel's message, then this is the message for now. But there's something very different in 1888 than there is in the church today. In 1888, and I want you to note it, there wasn't a single Adventist. Okay, that's an, that's a, that's an overstatement because there's only one or two. But as Seventh-day Adventists, Adventist members all believed, number one, we can overcome sin in this life. Everybody believed it. Number two, Christian perfection is not only possible, but essential for those who live to see Jesus come. Now, you can disagree with this, but this is history. In other words, you can say, oh, I don't think that way, but this is how the church believed then. Number three, those who are alive at the second coming will, by the grace of God, be living sinless lives. This is what Adventists believed. Now, you may be thinking, well, no wonder he sent that message to them in 1888 to straighten them out. But I just want you to understand that if you talk to any Seventh-day Adventist, this is what the church believed at that time. Now, here's some of the reasons that they believed it. They looked at scriptures like these. Matthew 1, what does it say? You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people, what? From their sins. And we can debate on how many sins, but it says you're going to save from sins. So that's where they went. Jesus in John 5, 14 told man by the pool of Bethesda, sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. Told the woman caught in adultery, what? Sin no more. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, as he who called you is what? Holy. You also be holy in what? Most of your conduct. All your conduct, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Romans 8, 3 and 4 says what the law could not do, and that it was weak through what? The flesh. God did by sending his own son that the righteous requirement of the law might be what? Fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Jude 24, now to him who is able to do what? Keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Philippians 4, 13, I can do how much? All things through Christ who strengthens me. So these types of scriptures, they read as saying, hey, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can't do it myself, but I can do it through Christ who strengthens me. Also, they read statements similar to these statements. Now, I shared with you some that were before the era and some that were after that 1880 era, so you get the idea that it wasn't, I don't know what particular statements, but there are a number of them like this, just so you grasp what we're looking at here. Early Writings, page 71, says, I saw that many, I also saw that many do not realize what they must be in order to live in the sight of the Lord without a high priest in the sanctuary through the time of trouble. Those who receive the seal of the living God and are protected in the time of trouble must reflect the image of Jesus, what? Fully. I saw that none could share the refreshing unless they obtain the victory over every besetment, over pride, selfishness, love of the world, and over every wrong word and action. Is that a little overwhelming? Good. Let all remember that God is holy and that none but holy beings can ever dwell in his presence. That was written in 1851. This was written in 1858, the book Great Controversy, the 1888 edition, says, Not even by a thought could our Savior be brought to yield to the power of temptation. This is the condition in which those must be found who shall stand in the time of trouble. Desire of Ages, page 123, says something similar. Not even by a thought did Jesus yield to temptation, so it may be with who? Us. Christ's humanity was united with divinity. He was fitted for the conflict by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and he came to make us partakers of the divine nature. So long as we are united to him by faith, sin has no more dominion over us. That's Romans 6.14. God reaches for the hand of faith in us to direct it, to lay fast, to hold upon the divinity of Christ that we may attain to what? Perfection of character. That's 1898 that that was penned. Third Selected Messages, page 360, says, He who has not sufficient faith in Christ 
to believe that he can keep him from sinning has not the faith that will give him an entrance into the kingdom of God. Now, as I said, this is how Adventists believe then when that message came through Jones and Wagner. They thought you really had to be perfect and overcome sin. Now, here's the kicker. So did Jones and Wagner. Now, you may think, well, they came and what they presented was, hey, look, no, 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 that's not important. Here's the, thing that, here's the thing that's unique about the message of Jones and Wagner. This is what we want to look at today. They didn't lower the standard of Christianity any more than Christ could have. The Christian world says Christ did away from, with the law. Folks, what is the law? Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. Now, I know, look, I don't want to get into, we can talk about perfection, and I know that in the church there are people that have wacky ideas of perfection. I don't want to get into defining perfection. But what we're talking about, what is the most perfect thing that we know? Christ. Christ is the embodiment of perfection. And the understanding in Adventism was that that was expected of every follower of Christ. Can that be daunting? Can that be overwhelming? Yes, it can, and for good reason. We should be daunted, because when we are, that's the purpose of the law, to bring the conviction that I can't do this myself, and it motivates me to look for somewhere where I can do it. And so what's fascinating about the message that came in 1888, you know, think of it this way. Anybody ever do the the high jump? You know, you've got that bar, and you've got to try to make it over the bar, and you keep raising up and see how high. Now, let's just say I've got the bar here, and I'm just not making it. I'm just not making it, okay? Now, I can lower the bar so I can make it over and feel real good about myself. But you know what? I'm not jumping any higher, right? I still can't jump. I just made myself feel like I'm jumping higher. You understand what I'm saying? Lowering the standard is never the purpose of the gospel. So what Wagner and Jones did, interestingly enough, is held the standard, but they lifted up Christ as the way to live, the way God, as the, as the transforming power, as Christ, our righteousness. We talked last week about the gospel being the power of God unto salvation. That's how they presented Christ, the power of God unto salvation. They presented Christ as the Lord our righteousness. I want you to look at that in our scripture reading. We looked at it. Jeremiah foretelling the coming of the Messiah says in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. We just laid a little uh, groundwork here that's going to take us into looking at what it means for Jesus to be the Lord, our righteousness. Jeremiah 23, starting in verse 5. The Bible says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. He's talking about the coming Messiah. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our Righteousness, And Ellen White says in one place that every believer can also call him the Lord my righteousness. And then we're going to talk about what that means as we continue on here. It's interesting when you look into the scripture and you look up the term gospel, there's a lot of different expressions. The Bible in Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But you read in uh, Acts 20.24, it talks about the gospel of the grace of God. And our last message, we looked at how in Scripture, grace of God is unmerited favor, but in his unmerited favor, he gives us power, and we saw grace as a, as a uh, manifestation of the power of God. So the gospel of the grace of God, Mark 1.14 talks about the gospel of the kingdom of God. Ephesians 6.15 talks about the gospel of peace. 1 Peter 1.24 talks about the gospel of the word. But the single most used expression in the New Testament is the gospel of Christ because Christ is the foundation of every part of the good news of salvation and redemption. That's why the Bible says there is no other name given under heaven among men 
whereby we must be saved. Look at Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1.30 with me, and notice what it says. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30. The Bible says, But of him you are in who? Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Everything valuable, everything worthwhile we have is found in our connection to Jesus. Now, I wanted to lay this groundwork simply to say, in this complementary relationship with the law and the gospel, that only when you realize fully what God is calling you to, can you appreciate what the gospel is promising to do for you? And I want you to go with me as we look at what it means to be for Christ to be our righteousness to the book of Hebrews. We're going to Hebrews chapter 2. To me, this is, this is one of the most fascinating passages of Scripture. That highlights the purpose of the mission of Jesus to this earth. Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to read verses 5 through 8, and we're going to break them down, okay? Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5. In fact, let's start in verse 4. We need to get some setting there. Verse 4 says, God, also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will, for he, God, has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. What's the world to come? Can somebody tell me that? What's the world to come according to Scripture? Heaven already exists. The new earth. The new earth, okay? He, God, has not put the world to come, the new earth, in subjection to angels... But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than thee who? Angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. So, God has not put the world to come in subjection to angels, but then it says he's put it in subjection to who? Who's he talking about when it says, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You've made him a little lower than the angels, etc., etc. A lot of people jump to the conclusion, they say, it's Jesus, because they read that phrase, son of man. But he's quoting from the Psalms, and you go back to the Psalms when David's writing this, he's not, when he says man and the son of man, it's a Jewish idiom, he's simply saying, God, what is man that you you consider us? You have this vast universe. You have such a wide creation. We're a speck of dust in this whole universe. What is man that you are mindful of him? And then he goes on to say, and I'll ask it this way. He says, you've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. Can you think of somewhere where God set man over the works of his hands? Okay, let's go to Genesis. We're going to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Hold your finger there. We're going back to Hebrews. Genesis 1, verse 26. Genesis 1, verse 26 says, Then then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let what? Them. Who's that include? Okay, well, in in Genesis 1, who did it include? It says man. What did man include? Adam and Eve. Okay, so both of them are included. I just thought that was important to note. Let them have dominion. What's dominion? 
It's rulership, authority over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over all, uh, I'm sorry, over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have, what's the word? Dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, we see God creating mankind and putting them in charge of all of what? The earth. So when we go to Hebrews, it says God hasn't put the new earth in subjection to angels. He's put it in subjection to who? Man. He, he hasn't put it in subjection to angels, but he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? He set man over the works of his hands. Now that in and of itself could have us reeling. Because man lost that dominion. How? Genesis 1, we see man has dominion, but what happened in Genesis chapter 3? Adam and Eve turned to another master, didn't they? Okay, God had said, do thus and so, but the devil said, no, 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 do thus and so, and they choose to follow, chose to follow a different master. What happened when they did that? Let's go to Job. And I want you to see something in the book of Job that is important in this connection. Right before the book of Psalms, you have the book of Job. Job 1. Verse 6. Job 1, verse 6. The Bible says here, There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now we might read right here on the onset, say, oh, the sons of God came. There's a bunch of human beings who came to meet with God. And then here... Uh, uh, the de oh, the devil came among them. Now, continue on. Satan came among them. And verse 7 says, The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going back to and fro on the what? Earth and back and forth on it. And then the Lord said, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him, upright and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what I want you to gather here is there's a meeting taking place, but this meeting is not on the earth, and we know that because when he asked Satan where he came from, he came from the earth. So who are the sons of God in this meeting? Go to the, let's go to the uh, New Testament book of Luke, where we find the genealogy of Christ. And you'll find something interesting in it. This just says the lineage that, that uh, Jesus came through. Luke chapter 3. And I'm not going to read the whole list. I'm going to spare you that. But if you look at verse 23, we'll get our start there. Luke 3.23 says, Now Jesus himself began his ministry to be about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methat, da 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 all the way down to, let's go to verse 37, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. Whose son was Adam? The son of God. Now, I want you to think this through. There's a meeting in heaven. All of these different people come to the meeting, and they're called the sons of God. Adam is referred to as a son of God here in the genealogy of Jesus. When God does the roll call for the meeting, Satan shows up, and he says, where are you coming from? He says, I'm coming from the earth. Now, I want you to understand what's happening. These sons of God are the atoms of other worlds. And God is taking roll call, and when he calls for the earth, instead of Adam showing up and saying, here, earth is here represented, Satan shows up. 
Now, why does Satan show up instead of Adam showing up? Because Adam handed it over to the devil when he chose to follow him. You see, Adam's failure in Eden impacted the whole planet and gave earth into the hands of the enemy. Are you with me so far? Okay, just to confirm that, let's go to John 12. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John 12, 31. John 12 and verse 31. Jesus says in John 12, 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the what? Ruler of this world will be cast out. Who's he talking about? Talking about the devil. And what's Jesus called the devil? The ruler of this world. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, they gave earth over into the hands of the enemy. God gave humanity rulership and dominion over the earth, but because of their transgression, they lost that dominion. So the idea in Hebrews that God would put man back in charge. Let me ask you, if you were owner of a corporation and you put a guy in charge and he wrecked the whole incorporation and bankrupted it, when you start another company, are you going back to the guy who bankrupted it and say, hey, I want you to be my CEO? Just the simple fact that God would say, I'm not going to put angels in charge of the new earth, but I'm going to put humanity in charge is, is amazing. I want you to go with me to the book of Romans. We're going to go back to Hebrews in a minute. I want you to go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, and we're going to look at, we're not going to break down all of Romans 5. We're going to draw a couple things out of it. Romans 5 and verse 12, I want you to see the impact of this losing of the dominion of the earth by Adam and Eve. Romans 5 and verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man, what? Sin entered the world, and death through sin. And thus death did what? Spread to all men, because all sinned. What the Bible's telling us is the act of Adam in sinning. You have to understand that Adam was the father of the human race. Now, we have a saying that says, like, father, like, son, right? Because... A father can pass on characteristics to his child, right? When Adam was in his holy, undefiled, unsinless, his sinless state when God created him, there's a lot more he could have passed on to his descendants than after his sin. But what happened is when Adam and Eve sinned, when Adam sinned as the father of the race, the only thing, he corrupted his nature the, nature, the human nature when he sinned. We call it, today we call it the fallen nature, the sinful nature, the carnal nature. It's like he introduced a virus into the software program. I don't know if you've ever gotten something like that on your computer. You get somebody, if somebody has a virus on their computer, and they can put a little thumb drive in to share a file with you, and then they give that file, guess what happens? That little corruption rides around. From that computer goes everywhere else. When Adam sinned, he corrupted humanity, and then that nature passed on to everyone he fathered, who is is everyone. We're all descendants of Adam. And that's what the Bible's telling us here. This corrupted nature of Adam spread to all men because Adam was the progenitor of this race. If you go back with me to Romans 3, Romans 3 will tell us what the net effect of that is. Romans chapter 3, and we're going to just look at a few verses here, verse, starting in verse 10, Romans 3, verse 10. Bible says, as it is written, there is what? How many righteous? None righteous. And in case we want to argue with him, he says, no, not one. Well, but isn't this guy over here? No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who what? Seeks 
after God. You may argue that. You say, hey, wait a minute. I've had time. I, you know, I used to be far from the Lord, but I sought after him. You know why any person ever seeks after God? Because he sought you first. Because his Holy Spirit started prompting something in your heart and drawing you to himself. What the Bible's telling us is there's nothing good in man. It was Paul who says later on in the book, in my flesh dwells no good thing. There is none who does good. No, not one. I'm sorry, verse, verse uh, I jumped ahead. Verse 11, there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. Verse 12, they have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Verse 19 says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that how many mouths? Every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Verse 23, for how many? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So because of Adam's transgression and the fact that he's the father of the race, he passed that sin on to every one of us. That's what we inherit from him. And I'm going to tell you that we don't have a, a, a solitary thread of a hope for heaven from anything we got from Adam. So when you go back to Hebrews, follow the, the apostles' argument here in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. He says again, verse 6, in a certain, uh, one testified in a certain place, saying, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You set him over the works of your hands. You put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that God has put all things in subjection under man, I'm just reading in there, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not what? We do not yet see all things put under him. What's his point? God created the earth. He put man in charge of everything. Is man in charge of everything now? No. Because he lost it. Because he gave it over to the devil through sin. But what the Lord is telling us, the apostle is telling us here in the book of Hebrews is, all things were put under him, but we do not, and he uses a very important word here, we do not yet see all things put under him. Now he's telling us here that the world to come, the new earth, God's going to have man in charge of it, just like man's in charge here. You say, wait a minute, man's not in charge here. Oh, he says, hold on. Hold on, we're not there yet. Yeah, Adam and Eve were put in charge, and now they're not in charge. We don't yet see all things put under man. We know that man botched it. We know that mankind messed it up. We know that man is sinful. How is this ever going to be fixed? But, verse 9 begins, but we see who? Jesus, who was made a little what? Lower than the angels. Now, wait a minute. Is Jesus lower than the angels? What is the only capacity in which we could say Jesus is lower than the angels? Because he took humanity. Now, I don't want you to miss it. What the apostle is saying is, look, God is planning in that new earth for mankind to be restored and to have everything God created mankind for. The problem is mankind blew it in the garden. We sinned, and now because Adam sinned, every one of his descendants is a sinner. And in and of ourselves, we have no hope of escaping that. We've lost our dominion, but wait. But wait. Look at Jesus, who came in the place of man. Look at Jesus. Now he comes onto the playing field in humanity. Is it possible that he could do in humanity what Adam failed at? We don't see yet man put. What's the implication there? We don't yet see man restored back to his original glory. What's the implication? He will be because we see Jesus. You follow that? He will be because, look, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. 
for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Verse 10 says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. Those sons are you and me, his children. Bringing us to glory means his standard of character. It was fitting for him to make the who? What's the word? Captain of their salvation. Perfect through suffering. Who's the captain of our salvation? Jesus is. Now, I found this interesting, two things. The same word that we read here, the Greek word, I should say, that's translated captain here, is the same word we read in Hebrews 12 that calls Jesus the author. The author and finisher of our faith. The word for author is the same word here as captain. And both words, listen carefully, from the Greek word archigos, means the originator in the classical Greek the word is used for the progenitor of a clan or a father of a group of people. Okay, now don't miss it. Right now, who's our father? Well, right now our father should be Jesus Christ. We understand in a minute, and that, that may be confusing, but we are descendants of Adam when we're born naturally. And we receive only what Adam can give us, that is his sinfulness. But now the Bible tells us we see Jesus. And Jesus comes into humanity. And the Bible uses this word captain, progenitor. In other words, it puts him in the same place as Adam was, implying that if we connect ourselves to Christ, we might be able to receive from Christ a nature, just like we received from Adam a nature, only the nature we receive from Christ is infinitely better. Amen? He becomes the, the, the captain of our salvation. Now look, if you've ever played on a team and you've got a lousy captain, forget about it. But if you've got a good captain, what? Victory! The captain of our salvation. Isn't that awesome? I mean, the captain, if Jesus is the captain of our salvation. Amen! Folks, I don't care how high the standard is if Jesus is my captain. I'm confident in him. Why did Jesus come in humanity? You ever ask yourself and live in humanity? I mean, he could have just died on the cross and gone back to heaven. A.T. Jones, one of those messengers in 1888, said this. It was 1889, uh, Ottawa, Kansas camp meeting. says, why did the Savior come as an infant instead of a man? To die on the cross would have met the penalty. Because he lived a child and met all the temptations a child meets and never sinned so that any child can stand in his place and resist in his strength. Why did Jesus live a perfect humanity? So we don't have to or so that we could? Notice this statement from the pen of Ellen White. She says in the book Confrontation, page 17, the great work of redemption could be carried out only by the Redeemer taking the place of fallen Adam. With the sins of the world laid upon him, he would go over the Ground where Adam stumbled. You ever ask yourself why Jesus went and met those three temptations in the, in the wilderness? In fact, the Bible says the Spirit of God led him in the wilderness after his baptism to meet three temptations. Why not four temptations? Why not six temptations? Why not two temptations? Because John tells us that all that is in the world can be summed up in three base temptations. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And Jesus met every one in that Wilderness. In other words, every, and if you go back to Genesis, and if we took the time, Adam and Eve fell at every one. And everywhere that Adam failed, Jesus overcame. That's what it's talking about. He came to the place where Adam was. He came in the place of fallen Adam. With the sins of the world laid upon him, he would go over the ground where Adam stumbled. He would bear a test infinitely more severe than that which Adam failed to endure. He would overcome on man's account and conquer the tempter that through his obedience, Christ's obedience, his purity of character and steadfast integrity, his righteousness might be imputed to man that through his name man might overcome the foe, what? On his own account. 
In other words, Christ would transform and empower humanity and raise humanity back to God's original plan. Folks, that's the good news of salvation. I mentioned to you last week, it would be no good news if you were in a jail cell and you heard the governor was on his way with a pardon in his pocket. He comes and visits you and you're in jail for life and he comes and he takes that pardon out and he sits down and tells you, look, I want you to know I have a pardon here and I just want you to know that you're going to be in here the rest of your life, but just be confident you're innocent the whole time. See you later. I don't know, something tells me it would bug me being in that cell. Jesus doesn't just tell us that we're forgiven. He gets us out of the cell. That we might overcome through the power of Christ. Brothers and sisters, the righteousness of Christ is not a passive thing. It's an active thing in the life of the Christian. It's like somebody makes a deposit in your bank account. Listen, if somebody made a deposit of a million dollars in your bank account, said it's all yours, do what you want, would you spend it? If you believed it was there, would you spend it? Or save it? Or act like it's there in some way or the other? Look, I'd be, be like that. I got money in my account. I wouldn't be like, oh, you know. Jesus, when we come to Christ, the Bible says he makes a deposit of righteousness in your account. Are you trying to spend it? What do I mean by that? What battle can't you gain victory over when Jesus has put his righteousness to your account. This is what this is talking about. It's the righteousness, the living righteousness of Christ. Notice the statement here. Third Selected Messages, page 132, says of Jesus, he exercised in his own behalf no power which man cannot exercise. That doesn't mean because we have it naturally. It's saying that through Christ, the whole reason he took humanity is to give us power we wouldn't naturally have. His life testified that by the aid of the same divine power which Christ received, it is possible for man to obey God's law. Desire of Ages 664, a little bit more of the same idea. The Savior was deeply anxious for his disciples to understand. Who are his disciples? His disciples then, and we got disciples here today. He's anxious for you to understand this. For what purpose his divinity was united to humanity? He came to the world to display the glory of God that man might be uplifted by its restoring power. God was manifested in him that he might be manifested in them. In other words, God was revealed in Jesus so that Jesus could be revealed in us. Jesus revealed what? No qualities and exercised no powers that men may not have through faith in him. His perfect humanity is that which all his followers may possess if they will be in subjection to God as he was. I'll go back to that in a minute. Jesus met the tempter on the ground that Adam fell. That's what Hebrews 2 is telling us. And in the place of Adam, Jesus comes, it overcomes where Adam failed and becomes the captain of our salvation. Now, I want to finish up with this thought in Romans 5. Romans 5, we looked at verse 12, how sin passed upon us because of the sin in Adam and, of Adam and Eve. Not that we are held guilty because of Adam's sin, but we receive the nature of Adam. It's a whole other subject. But I want you to zero in with me on Romans chapter 5 verse 19. The Bible says, For as by one man's disobedience, who was that? Adam. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, who was that? Jesus Christ. Many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, what? Grace abounded much more so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Note that just as sin reigned, now righteousness is supposed to reign in us because of the power of Christ. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. By one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. 
And I want you to notice back in verse 10, and I'm going to bind this off with this verse 10. It says, of Romans 5, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by what? I want you to note something interesting here. The Bible doesn't say we're saved by the death of Christ. It says we're reconciled by the death of Christ. It says we're saved by the life of Christ. It says that one man's obedience makes us righteous. I want you to hear what A.T. Jones had to say about that. Again, from these Ottawa, Kansas camp meetings. It is Christ's obedience that avails and not ours that brings righteousness to us. Can you say amen to that? It's not our obedience, it's his obedience. And I want you to notice what Jones is saying. Well then, let us stop trying to do the will of God in our own strength. Stop it all. Put it away from you forever. Let Christ's obedience do it all for you. Now, I've heard this before, but I often don't hear the next part. Let Christ's obedience do it all for you and gain the what? Strength to pull the bow so that you can hit the mark. He's using the idea that the word sin in the Greek is the word hamartia. It means to miss the mark. Like you're shooting for a target and you miss. He says, let the obedience of Christ strengthen you so you can pull the bow and hit the mark. In other words, the obedience of Christ doesn't work just outside of you. It works inside of you. Again, Jones says Christ was faithful. His faithfulness comes to us in answer to our faith, and that makes us faithful. It is only by his obedience that we are made righteous. Then when I have anything to do, let my faith reach out to him and bring faithfulness from him to enable me to do it. In answer to our faith as it grows, more and more of his power and goodness will do what? It will come to us. And just before probation closes, we shall be like him indeed, and then we shall be keeping the commandments of God in fact, because there will be so much of him in us that there will be none of ourselves there. Praise the Lord for that. That is when we get to the place where we keep the commandments of God, and there is the beautiful promise, here are they, that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. That is, the, that is Christ, our righteousness. His perfect righteousness is put upon us and put into us, and by faith in him, we become new creatures in Christ. And note I didn't say by feeling in him. I can't tell you how many Christians will say, but pastor, I just don't feel. It's not about what you feel, it's about what God has promised. Do you believe that there's a deposit made in your bank account? I want to tell you something. The Bible tells me that Jesus put a deposit of righteousness in my account. And even if the transaction I get from the bank says there's zero in there, I'm going to believe what Jesus says. How about you? E.J. Wagner made at this point about being saved by his life that we just read. The other of the two messengers there in 1888 says, Men are not saved through their own obedience, but through the obedience of who? Christ. The Bible does not teach us that God calls us righteous simply because Jesus of Nazareth was righteous 1,800 years ago. It says that by his obedience we are made righteous. Notice that it is present, actual righteousness. His life is as perfect, it should say, uh, yeah, no, as, as perfectly in harmony with the law now as it was then, and he lives in the hearts of those who believe on him. Therefore, it is Christ's present obedience and believers that makes them righteous. Here is the whole story. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but who? Christ liveth where? In me, in the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So brothers and sisters, by birth, by birth we became part of the first Adam. We had no choice in that. You know how we become part of the second Adam? By birth, we received the nature of Adam. We were born sinners with sinful natures. But the Bible says by faith, we can be born, what? Again. And when we're born again, we don't receive the first Adam's nature. We receive the second Adam's nature. 
By being born again, we don't have to be in the bondage of sin. By being born again, we can be transformed, and the righteousness of Jesus becomes Christ, our righteousness. And our sanctification and redemption, as we read in 1 Corinthians 1.30, and in Him, we will have all the righteousness we will ever need to find entrance into the kingdom of God. But you know what happens too often? Too often, we lament. I, I hear Christians talk about how hard it is, how we'll never be, I'll never become that, I'll never overcome this. And we talk and talk and talk and talk and talk about our weaknesses until I wonder if anybody's ever even thought twice about Jesus Christ. How big is your Savior? I want to tell you, the smaller your Savior is, the more you're going to have to lower that bar on that high jump. But when you believe in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, yeah, the standard of of reaching heaven may be daunting. I'm just glad that I don't have to get there myself. I can trust in the righteousness of Christ. And I want to finish with this powerful statement from the pen of Ellen White from the book Faith and Works, page 76. She says, God help us, brethren, to wake up and stir ourselves now to do as much as the paralytic did, to do as much as the impotent man did, and as much as the one with the palsied arm, right? Jesus comes to these people, these pathetic cases who have been sick their whole lives. Rise, take up your bed and walk. No, sorry, I can't. I'm just so weak. I can't do it. Is that what they did? No, they put forth some energy and the power of Christ came in. She says, let us stir ourselves. God, wake us up to stir ourselves at least as much as these men did and believe in the righteousness of Christ. They did just as they were told. When Christ tells me something to do in his word, when he tells tells you something to do in his word, don't sit and start making excuses about how hard it is and it's impossible for you to do it. Yes, it's impossible for you to do it. That should be a foregone conclusion, but it's not impossible for Christ. They did just as they were told. God, help us to believe on the Son of God, that he can save us to the what? To the utmost, and we shall have everlasting life. But many of you act as though there wasn't enough animation in your souls to respond to the truth. Some of you act as though you thought Jesus were locked up in Joseph's new tomb. He is not there. He is risen from the dead. And we have a living Savior today, whoever lives, and I'm putting that in there from Hebrews 7.25, whoever lives to make intercession for us. Jesus isn't on the cross anymore, saints. We don't have crucifixes in the Seventh-day Adventist church. He's not in the tomb anymore. He is risen and ascended to the right hand of God to give you everything that pertains to life and godliness. What is it that you can't gain through Christ? Where is it you can't go through Christ? What victory can't you have today through Christ? Today, brothers and sisters, the Lord offers us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Wherever you've been, whatever weaknesses you have is inconsequential. Today, the righteousness of Christ is yours and you can truly call him the Lord my righteousness. And it will be all the righteousness you'll ever need to have assurance of a place in the kingdom of God. You just have to say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, and give me your righteousness. Is that your desire today? How many of you want the righteousness of Christ? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Father, I pray as you've spoken through clay again today, Lord, that your spirit would take these words and stir our hearts and help us to realize that in Jesus Christ, we are complete. In him, we have everything that we need. Because he came and took our humanity, because he perfected a righteous character, because he offers that freely to us, there's nothing we can't do and nowhere we can't go through Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, help us to live as Christians preparing for the coming of the Lord. Help us to live as those, not those who believe that Jesus is still on the cross, not those who believe he's still shut up in the tomb, but those who believe he has risen and ascended to the right hand of God, ever living to make intercession. Thank you so much for the precious 
gift of the righteousness of Christ. And we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.